Coming to you from Brick House in downtown Brooklyn, this is 112BK. On the show today, the wave of teachers' strikes continues to roll across the nation. What's causing them and what will they achieve? Plus, opportunities in arts management for aspiring youth, right here in downtown Brooklyn. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Ashley Ford, and I'm joined by producer Ross Tuttle. Hello, Ashley. Hey, Ross. How are you doing? I'm pretty good. How are you? I'm all right. You know, uh, a little disturbed. I saw that video on your Twitter feed this morning. Oh, you mean the one of the white man harassing those employees for speaking Spanish and then doubling down and all of that? Doubling down, threatening to call ICE. Threatening to call ICE on them. Saying we're going to deport you, get you out of my country. Yes. We're going to play part of that clip right now. Clients at your yeah, staff yeah. is speaking Spanish to customers when they no, should be speaking. Very I mean, he's sometimes very they do. Yeah. Yeah. Every person I listen to, he spoke it, she speaking it, is America. They, they, yeah. You're, you're, yeah. You're, yeah. You're, yeah. He's very ignorant. He's very ignorant. And he shouldn't be allowed. And I will be following up. And my guess is, they're not documented. So my next call is to ICE to have each one of them get out of my country. If they have the balls to come here and live off of my money, I pay for their welfare, I pay for their ability to be here. If you intend on running a place in Midtown Manhattan, your staff should be speaking English, not Spanish. Because the people like you are nation. I am calling ICE. You know, he says, um, my guess, when he's talking to the manager, my guess is they're undocumented. Mm. Um, so I'm going to call ICE to have each of them kicked out of my country. Mm-hmm. This is the important part. If they have the balls to come here and live off my money, I pay for their welfare. Welfare. I pay for their ability yeah. to be here. Let's just stop right there, first of all. Because if you're undocumented, how do you get welfare? Hmm? That's a good question. How do you go get some welfare with no documents? Does anybody does anybody know how that works? Right. It's really, really crazy because there are so many people who believe that, who genuinely do believe that if someone is on welfare or that if someone is getting resources, that they're an undocumented person, which automatically counts them out for getting resources, right. even when they pay into the system. Right. When they pay into the system, they still aren't eligible to get Social Security, even though they may right. pay into it. The one thing they can get maybe is help if they go to the emergency room. These threats to call ICE are something that's so disgusting and so upsetting to me because what I understand of ICE and what I've seen happen in the news when ICE shows up and when they take people away, like you are ripping apart families, you are ruining lives, people could die, like they're being sent to detention centers, you have no idea what's happening, and it all comes, it's all fueled from this place of like, this place is mine, You haven't been grateful enough Mm. for me allowing you to be here. And so now I don't care what happens to you as a human being. Well, it's like all these guys are coming out of the woodwork now, it seems, being emboldened by our Mm. scapegoater-in-chief. And it feels like it's a piece with what's been going on with these 911 calls. Again, Mm. it's a warning you know, are there these suspicious black folks doing something like the the woman who was sleeping in the dormitory? Oh, yeah, sleeping in Yale. the common room in the dormitory, which I don't know what happens at Yale, but I can tell you at Ball State University in Muncie, Indiana, some things besides sleeping happened in those common rooms, and I had never heard of anybody getting the police called on them. 
right? It's a little crazy. And then there was one here in Williamsburg where yes. there was a woman and her daughter. They were shopping at a vintage clothing store. Mm-hmm. Uh, also accused of some suspicious behavior. The mm-hmm. shop manager thought maybe they were shoplifting. Uh, apparently, according to their account, followed them out of the store, called the police. The police mm. handcuffed them, held them for about 45 minutes. Look, finally looked through their bags, to, despite their protestation, said, you know, finally check it out, see if we stole anything. Their bags were had no stolen items in them. This regular demeaning of black consumers, okay? My black dollars go to the bank the same as anybody else's dollars. If I show up in a space, a public space, and I'm immediately thought of as a threat because of the color of my skin, what am I supposed to do with that? And why don't these people understand that if I'm a threat because of the color of my skin to them, I could be a threat because of the color of my skin when the cops show up? In that moment, you're talking about a possible loss of property, of merchandise, of product. I'm talking about the possible loss of somebody's life. You know, we're thinking about what happened at this Airbnb. This woman called the cops and said it was because these women, the Air, the women who were staying, the black women who were staying at the Airbnb didn't wave at her. There's something really strange going on right now where it feels like white people, white women, <laughs> who feel like black people aren't being friendly enough mm-hmm. or who they don't seem gracious enough or whatever it is, like that is worth calling the cops on a person. And I don't understand that outsized yeah. response. Yeah, it's this crazy, weird vigilantism that seems to be happening. And I don't, I don't understand it either. Um, you know, it's something that's going to take a lot of unpacking. Yeah. Um, but I, have to, I think we have to leave it there for now. Yeah. We can return to this conversation again in the future. Oh, we're going to return to this conversation. we'll have to return to this conversation. We will. We will. It's not going away anytime soon. Mm-hmm. On the show today, a conversation I had with journalist Sarah Jaffe, who's been covering the teacher strikes, and then two arts management fellows and the opportunity they received that might be of interest to you or someone you know. Stay tuned. Inspired by a series of teacher strikes nationwide and the concessions they've won, as many as 15,000 teachers in North Carolina are set to march on the state capitol Wednesday in a fight over wages and public school funding in yet another Republican-dominated state. Earlier this week, just ahead of the North Carolina strike, to learn more about what's fueling these strikes, where they might lead and how they're reverberating here in New York, I spoke with independent journalist and author of Necessary Trouble, Americans in Revolt, Sarah Jaffe. Here's that conversation. Sarah, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you for having me. So since February, it seems like (laughs) there's just been one teacher strike after another cropping up over several states. Mm -hmm. Can you talk to me a little bit about what's happening, why it's happening, why now? Yeah, um, I think the why now is the important question, right? right? We've seen essentially for, you know, 30 years, attacks on the public sector that have, you know, systematically defunded all sorts of public goods from our crumbling subways here in New York to the public schools. Mm -hmm. And especially that all got heightened after the 2008 financial crisis and the the resulting state budget crises that you saw 
money being cut out of education everywhere, and right. that's resulted in all sorts of things. And so. We've seen teachers at the heart of protests in a lot of places, starting in, like, Wisconsin in 2011, mm -hmm. when Scott Walker, uh, the governor of Wisconsin, pushed through this anti-union bill. That. Right. Mm -hmm. And there were massive protests in the, the state capitol that were led by teachers, among others. Um, the Chicago Teachers Union strike in 2012 really was the beginning of this kind of sea change in teachers unions around the country, really thinking about how they could frame their struggle for decent wages and decent working conditions as part of a public good that is broadly, you know, a good thing for everybody to have access to, which is mm -hmm. functioning public schools. And so we've seen things like the Chicago Teachers Union really focused on racial inequality in Chicago right. and the closure of schools in black neighborhoods in Chicago. Right. Um, the Teachers Union in St. Paul, Minnesota has had, like, several successive contracts with, um, bargaining for restorative practices, curricula in schools, rather than, you know, pushing kids out who have disciplinary problems. Right. They're actually working on that. And what we've seen this year has been, like, the Red State Rebellion, right? It's West Virginia, it's Oklahoma, it's Arizona. Um, next week it's going to be North Carolina and Kentucky also. And th these are places where teachers' unions are really weak. Right. So what's happening instead is, is the teachers are sort of self-organizing themselves and saying, well, like, the way we've been doing this with very few legal protections for our union right. is not getting us anywhere. And so, you know, one successful strike then begets several more. Can you tell me about right-to-work states, collective bargaining? Yeah. Like, these so are, are things that keep coming up, and the I'm other, like, yeah, yeah. So the other super interesting thing that's happening right now, right, is this wave of teacher strikes is happening while the Supreme Court is deliberating this case called, um, it's short for Janus v. AFSCME, which is another right. public sector union that could potentially make the entire public sector across the country right-to-work. So what right-to-work mm. means, a lot of people think that right-to-work means unions are illegal. That's not actually true. What it means is that unions are legally required everywhere they exist in the country to mm -hmm. cover and bargain for everybody in that particular workforce. Mm -hmm. In exchange for that, in a lot of places, unions bargain for then what's called fair share fees, mm -hmm. which means that if you don't want to be a member of the union, you don't want to pay full dues, you don't have to, but if you are represented by a union that does the work of bargaining to represent you, you pay something to it. Right. Right to work means that that is illegal. You cannot require people to pay any sort of fair share fees. Mm -hmm. So the point of these particular laws, which we should say really come out of a, a very racist anti-union push that started in the South in the 20s and 30s mm. that was basically, you know, it was built around arguing to white workers that they didn't want to be in unions with people who were not white. Um, this push started and spread across the South, mm. winning on that very argument. And what it's done in those places is it makes it very hard for unions to be successful because they it's very easy to convince somebody that the easiest way to give themselves a raise is not pay that, you know, 2 3% to the union. Mm. And so that's what's happening. So when we're seeing these unions in these right-to-work states, it's possible to still have strong unions in right-to-work states, right. but it's harder and it's more expensive. What about collective bargaining? Is right. that where that comes in? Yeah, Is so that like when... Um, so what happens if you decide to not join the union right. and the union then fights, yeah. <laughs> like, on your behalf? Yeah. It's like, is so that... Collective bargaining, like, it, it gets mystified, this term, right? But, like, right. what 
We're seeing in these states where there's been a major strike and the teachers have made demands and the legislature, rather than, like, the school board, is agreeing to some of their demands and then passing a law. Mm -hmm. That's essentially what collective bargaining is, except it's usually done in a place like New York, where there's a, a powerful teachers' union that has a contract with the school district, the United Federation of Teachers. What they do is they, you know, they have a contract, they bargain a contract, the union votes on whether they accept the contract that has been bargained by a representative of the union mm -hmm. with the school district, and then that contract lasts for a couple years, three, four years, and then at the end of that period, they bargain another contract. So that's what it means to have collective bargaining rights. In right. practice, it looks different in different places. It looks different when you have a union like, say, the Chicago Teachers Union that does really high participation right. bargaining practices. Um, but on some level, the same thing that's happening with the, the strikes is what's happening in a collective bargaining practice. You are mm. bargaining for your wages and working conditions right. and, in some cases, things that are maybe outside of wages and working conditions. Right by acting collectively and, and holding the, the possibility of, you know, withholding your labor if, right. the, if the management, if, in this case, the school district doesn't bargain with you. Presenting yourself as a unit. Right. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Got that. The people who do not want to work with or for unions, yeah. what is, what's the argument there? What are the concerns there? there are, what's the worry? Yeah. I mean, there are a few. Like I said, the one, the fastest way to give yourself a raise is the argument, right, a lot of the time that you are paying some sort of fee to your union. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, you know, if you look at the numbers and the, you know, Bureau of Labor Statistics is very clear on this, that unionized workers make more money, even if you control for the little bit that you're paying to the union. Right. Other people are just ideologically opposed to it, right? They say, mm -hmm. I have a good relationship with my boss. I don't need anybody else. Mm -hmm. I can deal with my boss directly. And that sometimes is true. It's very often true until it's not true. And then you realize sort of after the fact, like, oh, I guess this is why... Right. people want at the union. There's been tendencies among certain parts of the labor movement for a long time to sort of act as though, you know, they're just a service institution that is here to take care of the workers. And people feel disconnected from that. They feel like, why am I paying dues to this thing again? Mm -hmm. And it is, on some level, you know, um, something that, that um, labor people call business unionism. Whereas what we're seeing in action in places like West Virginia, Arizona, mm -hmm. and on uh, the 16th of this month, it's going to be North Carolina, mm -hmm. is what a union actually is. Right. It's people acting together for a common goal. And that's what a union really should feel like. And if workers Absolutely. don't feel that, they maybe don't want to be part of it because it doesn't feel like anything. Well, what do you say to, and this is a really common criticism mm -hmm. of unions, and specifically with education unions, the fact that there are people who can't be fired when they do something I mean, there are awful. who can't be fired. There is due process protections, right. which are a thing that is, like, the law for most other countries, just mm -hmm. in general, that you don't even need a union. You just have to, like, you have to have just cause to fire somebody. Right. So you have... Um, it's interesting this year, right, because we heard with Me Too, we heard a whole lot about, like, what about due process for all of these uh -huh. men who were accused of all things, right? And, like, you know, and we would kind of go, like, really? Mm -hmm. But also, yeah, I mean, on some level, yes, you should have due process before you're fired. You should, in fact, have to go through something in order mm -hmm. to make sure that your boss can't just, like, wake up, have a bad Tuesday, and decide that you're out. Right. And so, 
the idea that you can't be fired is usually based in like some horror stories that somebody dug up somewhere of like the one teacher who right. you know, didn't get <laughs> fired. Um, but it's really much simpler than that. It's the fact that you should have some protections. You know, teachers get in a lot of places a version of tenure, like academics. When you get, you know, when you're a famous academic and you get tenure, it's very hard to fire you. Right. Um, teachers get some version of that, although that, too, has been whittled away in a lot of places, including New York, mm -hmm. over many years. Um, Michael Bloomberg was a noted opponent of teacher tenure. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Not feeling that, Michael Bloomberg. Exactly. Was. Can you um, talk to me a little bit about New York, about, yeah. the, like, just really yeah. quickly? Um, teaching assistants at Columbia University mm -hmm. and more have yeah. gone on strike about negotiations. I've seen people tweeting about it today. Day, mm -hmm. to be perfectly honest. Yeah. There's a lot of people, um, and there's a lot of writers, actually, yeah. who have their background in academia mm -hmm. who are also Absolutely. talking about what it meant to adjunct. Yeah, um, yeah can you yeah, explain I mean, what's adjunct, going on The adjunct crisis is a particular thing. Like, talking about, you know, high-end tenured academics, like, that used to be, uh, I think it was Stanley Aronowitz who called it the last good job in America. Right, yeah. Right, and... The flip side of that is that more and more universities are cutting budget by hiring people class by class. Mm -hmm. And when that's class by class, it's literally like, you know, $2,000 to teach a semester of a course, which then you have to grade papers and you have to write tests and you have to do all the things that happen when you're not in the classroom. Oh, yeah. Even though you're technically only being paid for the time that you're in the classroom. And this is a way to save money. And it's a thing that happens when you are producing a bunch of PhD students mm -hmm. and you realize that like oh we can actually just like do an end run around this right. and then as you know as tenured professors retire they're not replacing them with another person who has job security who will stay at that university for 20 years right. and produce research and all of all of the things that we expect of professors right that instead is being replaced by you know temps essentially mm -hmm. and also with grad students, which is what we saw at Columbia and what we're seeing yeah. at the new school, is the grad students who do a lot of the teaching work on campus. And that's mm -hmm. an older tradition. But, you know, when I was a, a graduate teaching assistant a few years ago at Temple University, my courses were paid for, right? That was mm -hmm. waived. And then my stipend was around $15,000 for the year. And that was what I was supposed to live on. Ooh. And, that's um, interesting. Yeah. And so... You know, that's that was my wages for teaching mm -hmm. a class um, every right. semester, and Oof. that's what we're looking at in the, the situation of grad students. Yeah. And you know, people argue, well, they're learning, so they're students, so this is part of their learning. But, but they're it's also like, this working, is what they and, they're, right, exactly. and they're doing the level doing of work and a lot of the cases. teaching on your campus. Absolutely. Well, you know what, Sarah? Thank you so much for being Thank here you. and for explaining this to us. <laughs> because to be perfectly honest, I know a lot of people yeah, are absolutely. a little confused, including absolutely. me. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's hard for young people these days to get relevant work experience if they're not doing free internships or paying for expensive master's programs. But a quartet of organizations here in Brooklyn, including BRIC, is providing an opportunity to learn, work, and get paid. It's an 11-month fellowship program in arts management. And we're joined by two soon-to-be grads of the program to talk about their experience, the opportunities for others, and their culminating event, Freedom Dreaming taking place right here at Brick House on Saturday. We welcome Sarah Branch, thanks for coming on the show, and Linda Diaz, welcome to 112BK. Thank, Thank you so much. 
So can we just start with you, Sarah? Sure. How did you get involved with the BK Fellowship? Sure, sure. Um, so I'm actually from Madison, Wisconsin, mm -hmm. uh, and I went to undergrad at Swarthmore College outside of Philadelphia and had heard about the program from my educational studies advisor. Mm -hmm. um, and she knew about my interest in theater, sociology, education, and the combination of the three. And I was having a lot of trouble finding jobs that seemed to fit my interests mm. um, that would actually Ooh, pay girl. me a living wage. Mm -hmm. um, and so <laughs> luckily enough, I saw the flyer for the Downtown Brooklyn Arts Management Fellowship. Um, it was a pilot year program, which was really exciting, um, and I was really attracted to uh, how the fellowship is set up where you do four work rotations at mm -hmm. all of the arts organizations. So you get to work in a dance uh, organization, in a theater organization, in a media arts and contemporary arts organization, a museum mm -hmm. organization. So you get a lot of breadth and get to work in different environments. And I thought that I needed to try a, a, bunch, of, a bunch of things out right. and see how it felt. And that was what I needed to do. And so this ended up being a perfect fit. And I wanted to stay on the East Coast. Yeah. Because that's where my interests and my passions really are kind of at home. Girl, also yeah. from the Midwest. Yeah, okay. yeah. Indiana okay. girl right here, so I <laughs> nice totally get it. Yeah, for Linda, sure. talk to me about your experience. So I'm from New York. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> no shade. <laughs> um, but I have been a performer all my life, um, and... Through college, I was really involved in music, mostly the music scene. Mm -hmm. And so even though I majored in American studies, I was always interested in looking at history through an artistic lens, be it visual art, performing arts. And so I actually interned at Brick my junior year oh, wow. um, in public programming. And so I got to work in the contemporary art gallery, but like programming music um, in that space. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of my first real introduction to contemporary art. Right. And I was like, wow, this is awesome. I get to mesh these two things that I find really interesting. Um, and so I kind of kept up with Brick since then. I'm from the Lower East Side, so not Brooklyn, but right. I, it's close enough that I, like, come. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> it's convenient. It's convenient. It is convenient. <laughs> um, and sure. so I, like, just kept tabs. I was on the mailing list. And my mom actually sent me... Um, this fellowship because we we're both on the mailing list and she was like this sounds like something you'd love and you loved your internship at Brick and I was like wow this is amazing so it was really Brick and the Brick faculty and staff that like made me interested in this fellowship because I just had such a great experience um, but also I definitely agree with Sarah like being able to try a bunch of different things um, not knowing exactly like what you want to do mm -hmm. right out of college in arts management right. um, was a very unique experience because otherwise you would have to go straight into grad school depending on what you want to do oh, yeah. mm -hmm. um, or do a bunch of unpaid internships which I had done throughout college um, right. so yeah it mm -hmm. was a great entry-level experience. Sarah can I ask you mm -hmm. um, <laughs> have you and, I, and I'm wondering this too for you Linda have you at all like stayed in contact with friends who since college have gone into some of those more traditional spaces, gone to grad school, maybe taken on some of those unpaid internships, things like that? How is your experience working out for you versus how their experience is working out for them? Like, mm -hmm. I, I wonder if it really is like that different mm -hmm. than paying a bunch of money to go mm -hmm. to, you know, into mm -hmm. an arts program or not getting paid at all to work in an arts program. Yeah. 
Well, when I came out of undergrad, I knew that I needed to immediately start making money to <laughs> kind of compensate for that time. Right, right. Um, so for me, I, I knew that I needed to get a job outside of undergrad. I wanted to stay on the East Coast. I wanted to be here. Um, I did have a lot of friends that went straight into law school, med school, grad school of some sort, um, friends that did uh, fellowships abroad and things like that. Um, and I think for me, it definitely was the move to, to do what I did to get a yeah. job. I feel, I feel like I needed a break from school. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like I needed uh, time in the field, hands-on, doing the sorts of things I had imagined myself doing but hadn't really tried yet or had an opportunity to try it. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's really what I needed. Right. Um, but for friends of mine that are in school right now, I think a lot of them are building up more debt, <laughs> which yeah. is really hard. And the reality of the situation for a lot of people that need that extra degree to get into the field that they right. want to pursue. And right. so I think what's really special about this fellowship is it kind of acts as something instead of having to pay for that master's in arts administration with that same um, high quality instruction. Um, mm -hmm. We have professional development and we get to be in the field actually doing the stuff rather than just talking about it. Which is, to be perfect, I think invaluable. When, yeah. I, when I see a job posted, they're asking me what I've done, not right. necessarily mm -hmm. where I've been. So, right, exactly. No, I totally get it. Mm -hmm. um, Linda, can you talk to me a little bit about the idea of Freedom Dreaming and how that came about and also about the event on Saturday? Yeah, okay. So um, we all went as a cohort at the beginning of our fellowship in the fall to the Brooklyn Conference, which mm -hmm. was, I think it was the first iteration of it, um, and it was focused on equity in arts management and just like the, not necessarily arts management, but like artistic fields as a whole. Right. Um, and so all of the fellows went, all seven of us, and we heard a bunch of speakers on the first day. Um, and there was this panel of women of color, um, one of which was Alicia Garza, who mm -hmm. is one of the founding members of Black Lives Matter. Yes. And she spoke with us about freedom dreaming, which is something that she does every day, um, just for like 10 minutes a day at the beginning of her day, basically mm -hmm. thinking about like what she would do or what the world would look like if there were no barriers to that being. Right. Um, and so that's not her term. It's actually a term that she got from Robin D.G. Kelly, who mm -hmm. um, he's, a, he's a historian. Right? Yeah, he's yeah. a history yeah. professor. He yeah. wrote a book, um, Freedom Dreams, The Black Radical Imagination. Yeah, mm -hmm. and he also credits the concept of freedom dreaming just to like a long lineage of things that black people have been doing for all of our existence. Right. Um, so definitely doesn't take in all of the credit for the concept of freedom right. dreaming. Um, and we thought that was really cool, so we decided mm -hmm. to take that concept and make it into our own. Um, event. Mm -hmm. And so, do you want to talk a little bit about the event? Should I talk about the event? Why don't sure, you sure, yeah, yeah. continue on, Sarah? Yeah, yeah. so it's a, a free community workshop, mm -hmm. and it's this Saturday at Brick from 12 to 3, and um, it's got a lot of components to it. Uh, mm -hmm. So, we're kind of creating a space uh, for people to participate in collective ideation. So, mm -hmm. thinking about the brightest future we could live in and figuring out the tools and the pathway to get there right. um, as a community and as individuals. Mm -hmm. So, at our event, there's going to be some great food. There's mm -hmm. going to be performances from Truth Worker, which is a social justice-based hip-hop theater company. Right. Um, there's going to be a speaker, B. Anderson, who's an activist and healer here in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. We're going to have DJ Soul Nova. Um, we're going to have um, some emerging artists there. Uh, 
Nabila Weira Kasuma, Nicole Moreno, and Almaz Wilson are going to be there with wow. their artwork. So it's really just going to be a beautiful time for people to come together, dream of positive outcomes, which I feel like there's not a lot of space to do in the world right now, is right. to really focus on the positive and figure mm. out how to get there. Yeah. You right yeah. on that. Um, <laughs> so the event is free and open to the yes. public. Yes, um, how can folks RSVP? I would go onto Eventbrite and RSVP mm -hmm. there. Again, the name of the event is Freedom Dreaming, A Call mm -hmm. to Imagine. Mm -hmm. so, Fantastic. Yeah. Thank you both so much for being Thank here. You. Thank you. Thank you. That's the show for today. Tomorrow, we'll hear from two organizations that advocate for Brooklyn's senior LGBTQ community on the heels of their Elder's Day event. And then, coffee. Brooklyn is overflowing with this stuff, both highbrow or high brew and low. We'll break it down with Brooklyn food maven Sarah Zorn. Hope you can join us. The Downtown Brooklyn Arts Management Fellowship partners are Mark Morris Dance Group, Theater for a New Audience, Museum of Contemporary African Diasporan Arts, and Brick. 112BK is hosted by Ashley C. Ford and is written and produced by me, Ross Tuttle, with Fred Brown, Shireen Bargi, Ariana Rosas, Naeem Van, Tyrese Hester, Kritzi Roberts, Emily Bogosian, and Sarah Grachowski. It is edited by Clinton Filson Jr. and Kyrell Palmer. It is recorded by Eric Hogaseg and Antonio M. Rosario. Our theme music was composed and produced by Brad Parker. And our executive producers are Aziz Aisham, Jonathan Leaf, and Sasha Mathias.